Libraries are very funny places. They're strange and troubled lands. Old librarians make very funny faces when you knock over book stands. Every building has a hundred thousand stories that have ne'er before been shared. And won't you be surprised at what is truth and what is lies when Librarians Anonymous is aired? And won't you be surprised at what is truth and what is lies when Librarians Anonymous is aired? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Whether you are a returning member or a first-time visitor, we welcome you to this meeting of Librarians Anonymous. You can call me Jeeves. And you can call me Wooster your guides and sponsors through the weird, wonderful, and downright wacky behind-the-scenes world of libraries. As we record this episode, it's officially fall now. We hope you all had a good summer and were all able to have some fun. While we enjoyed our break, Jeeves and I are happy to be back with you for our second season. That's right, Mr. Wooster, and we're excited to bring with us some fun new ways to enhance the show. A bit of housekeeping at the start. As 2021 has progressed, like many of you, Jeeves and I have returned full-time to our day jobs. Because of this, our pandemic-based free time has shrunk a bit. Since we have less time at home these days, we've decided to make this season a monthly series to ensure that we can provide you with better quality conversations instead of trying to rush more episodes. While we'd both love to make episodes as often as possible, we hope you'll understand. That's why we are going to try and add some fun new aspects to the show. So on that topic, What's one you have in mind, Jeeves? Well, how about a library shout out? This season, we want to share some cool libraries and collections that we've stumbled across and that you can explore, such as Brookhive, a special collections of the University Library at California State University, San Marino. The Brookhive's mission is to document and preserve the history of craft brewing industry in San Diego County. To me, this sounds like an amazing excuse to sample as many as they can while on the job. I have to taste it for the metadata. Did you ever think you'd visit a library to find out about beer? <laughs> Can't say that I have. I think the sourdough library is a little more up my alley. <laughs> How, however, the topic we're touching on today might benefit from some serious discussion and introspection over a cold one, or more likely two. The subject we'd like to focus on today is the concept of vocational awe in libraries. If you're not familiar with the term vocational awe, that's okay. It's a relatively new phrase, even if the concept is something librarians have been facing for years. That's right, Mr. Wooster. And to help us along in this exploration of the subject is our guest who has chosen the alias Biblioboro. You may have heard their name dropped in a previous episode, and we are so glad to have them on the show. Welcome to the show, Biblioboro. Let's kick things off with an anonymous introduction. What would you like our audience to know about you? Hi, I really like donkeys. Hence the alias. I have worked in libraries or library adjacent fields for over a decade. I really appreciate that I'm on the show. Longtime listener, first time caller. So before we get fully into the discussion, uh, how about we read a scenario and hear your take? Sounds like plan. All right, this is an example that Mr. Wooster found as a prime example of vocational awe in librarianship. And the writer says, my first library job after graduation was a non-librarian role within an academic library institution. I was initially very excited and fully believed that this role would help me build relevant skills that would be recognized for future librarian jobs. 
However, I quickly came to realize that taking a technician or non-librarian position was a polarizing topic. Mm -hmm. I was told that this move could be interpreted by potential employers as a decision to not become a librarian or an admission that my skill set was not strong enough. This interpretation was confirmed when my non-librarian experience was patronized and belittled in subsequent job interviews. This failing of mine to secure a librarian job quickly became compounded by my realizing that I still could not contribute to the profession in ways that I wanted to. It became a daily struggle to watch my librarian colleagues attend meetings, conferences, and workshops and see them have a voice in conversations. In a profession that prides itself on inclusivity, I had never felt so excluded in my life. I began to feel like academic librarianship was an exclusive club that I needed a magical key to get into. And that is from Melanie Cassidy from the article, Failure to Launch, Feelings of Failure in Early Career Librarians. Wow, that's really painful. Thank you for starting with such a really thoughtful um, excerpt from a real library professional's experience. I have a lot of thoughts about it. I'm sure the two of you do as well, which is why you brought it to the pod. There was a lot of notes of exclusion, notes of not a, a quote unquote non-professional library technician, although that's really misleading language. There's quite a bit of professional work that goes into um, paraprofessional work, that that made their contributions to their library community not important, whether that was real or just a perception. Uh, clearly, that was a message that this person was receiving from multiple fronts, and that is heartbreaking. Um, and it sounds like this is someone that had a master's degree in library science, and that they were being told that because they were not able to immediately get a job that required, you know, a master's program, that because you are working your way up a ladder, that your work isn't significant. Yeah, as the old fogey of the group here, <laughs> who's been in the field for uh, 20 years, this little snippet just really struck me because I had a very similar trajectory, but I didn't, I started without the masters. Obviously I started in high school, but you definitely hit that wall when you don't have the masters. Like in this case, they got through the program, but they couldn't get into a position at the level that they hoped to have. And that's understandable with the way the job market is having worked from pretty much the bottom up and then hitting that point and realizing that I could go nowhere, <laughs> you know, without a master's. It did really make me feel out of place in the field too. Like, you know, I said, I'd been there 15 plus years at that point in the field, but I still couldn't progress past a certain level. And it drove me to get my master's and to take that next step so I could feel like a fully fledged part of the community as it were. And in that way, I think the whole topic of this episode being vocational awe, it really is like the Hydra where it just has so many ugly heads. And if you chop off one, two more pop up. And this element, like Melanie said in the article and like Biblioboro really, you know, wonderfully broke apart how detrimental that whole situation was, is the element of vocational awe that is a purity test. 
And in this purity test, it's that there's a separation between uh, non-librarians and librarians. And that separation is this Gnostic change that occurs through a graduate level degree. And this is between MLIS librarians who are working as capital L librarians and MLIS <laughs> holders uh, who are not working as librarians. And so imagine if you would, from the perspective of the public librarian in the group, what that purity test does to separate librarians from the public. And I don't know about the two of you, but I definitely have the experience of like friends and family members introducing me and going, oh, this is Wooster. He's a librarian. And go, well, actually, because even I felt at that point, like, oh, I have to say, I mean, little L librarian, not big L librarian. We have to draw that line, even in casual conversation. Did that serve you or them, Wooster, to draw that distinguish um, distinguishment between capital L and lowercase l librarianship? I don't know that it served me. I think it was just ingrained in me. Mm. And, you know, so it was just almost a knee-jerk reaction that I felt I had to correct it because I knew, I knew whether they knew or whether they cared, I knew that I didn't have, you know, I hadn't earned that capital L yet. Yeah. I think it's just all the sweeter to say it now that we're radically in debt from the ability to <laughs> say so. You know, so I, I am certainly one of the... Um, unpopular opinion holders that you do not need a master's degree to be a capital L librarian. I do not personally believe that that distinction serves our profession in the way that we act like it does. And I have held librarian as a title in a job that did not require a master's degree. I was not paid like a librarian who had a master's degree, but I was expected to have the skills and the, um, the abilities that mastered degreed librarians had in comparable uh, work environments that I've seen. Um, and I will say, I felt like I had in that position the tools and resources to really thrive in that role. Not everyone does, right? A lot of people are put into a job where they have, you know, quote unquote librarian tasks, um, but they're not given the training, they're not given the resources, they're not given the admin support to do it successfully. I really question master's degree component of librarianship and I wonder who it serves and I personally question if it um, serves our profession or if it serves white supremacy and middle class ideologies which I think ties to vocational awe which we have not yet defined should we define that for the listeners yeah, okay so I, I want to start by saying I am not a librarian who researches this topic. I am not an expert on this topic. I do not write papers on this topic. Many librarians do and are. I'm not one of them. I just think about it a lot. <laughs> and I've had really rich conversations with um, the two of you outside of the podcast about this topic and adjacent topics. So thank you again for inviting me to talk about it on mic. 
Um, vocational awe was a concept invented by um, Fabazi Itar. Um, she is a librarian with a master's degree. Um, so she writes about it as a librarianship topic, but it does apply to other professions as well. So vocational awe is the idea that your profession, your vocation, your career is um, so inherently good. It is a sacred calling to work in that professional space. And because it is a sacred calling, it goes beyond the normal expectations and boundaries and limits that you would put on a job and becomes a, um, a higher space that is above critique. So um, in libraries, for instance, when we say things that we say a lot of, like libraries are for everyone, or libraries are democratic, or um, libraries are welcoming spaces, we are falling into a trap of vocational awe because we are no longer able to critique those spaces and say, who are we leaving out of our libraries? Who does not get a voice in our library services? Who have we historically marginalized through library services? And um, we also do it on a personal level Right, so I might go um, like Wooster and tell my friends, you know, I'm a capital L librarian. I'm doing important work. I work with kids. I am educating the public. I am, you know, growing the thinkers of tomorrow. I'm building lifelong learners. And because of that, I am now going to stop setting up boundaries for my own professional space, um, such as I'm going to start checking emails on weekends because it's going to be really important that I answer that email right away. Because if I don't, then there's a child who's not going to get access to the book that they need. And that is crucial to our mission as a library and my mission as a uh, children's librarian. So vocational awe is really this idea that we're not working jobs, we're working in a calling. Yeah, and I think that's so well put, absolutely well put. And, you know, it can cause us to harm ourselves and it can cause us to harm our colleagues and it can definitely cause us to disadvantage and perpetuate barriers to access and inclusion for patrons when it comes to that yeah it, it's like you said it, it we, we think of ourselves as this primarily good overwhelmingly good institution that has never done anything wrong and never will uh, we, we neglect the fact that you know libraries were the, one of the last institutions to desegregate in the south and many libraries that 
you know, probably look and act a lot like we expect libraries to look and act like today, shuttered their doors rather than desegregate. Um, say to ourselves when we have a difficult day at work, you know, not only do we internalize some things to our own detriment, but we can also turn them around on our patrons. And we say things like, ugh, get them out of here. They don't know how to behave in a library. They don't know how to keep this sacred space sacred instead of, you know, what do they need? Why is this, why, you know, this is a person in crisis. How can we, how, you know, what internalized trauma are they bringing into this situation? Why, you know, why do they not respect us as an institution? There's probably a reason there instead of like, you know, um, I'm here dying for this institution and they better behave. <laughs> So I think I think those are multiple heads of the hydra of vocational awe. It's the purity test. It's the self harm and burnout. It's the you know protecting barriers to access because of dogmatic gnostic respect for the institution. And I I think that it's really important to remember. I I really like Jeeves this um idea of the hydra right because it really is so multifaceted there's that that personal level right of you know the person who is not setting good personal boundaries with their work life because they're so um engulfed by this narrative of this calling and mission driven work a quick story talking about checking emails on the weekends and whatnot. My my director, my current position is really, really bad about <laughs> doing that. And she's very devoted to the job. And I, you know, I have more than once pulled the I'm going to act like dad here and tell you you need to go eat lunch because you've been in the office for <laughs> you know six hours and haven't eaten anything. <laughs> it's like I know I'm your employee, but I am a concerned person at this point that you are working yourself too far. There are, I think, although I have not been a director, so I could be wrong, but I think the higher you go up an administrative ladder, the more you have to be willing to go along with it in a system that doesn't challenge vocational awe. And so in the case of, say, your director who is working on their lunch break, that sucks. I mean, I just, I don't have a more professional way to respond to that. That sucks. Our capitalism craze economy, deprioritizing education, deprioritizing public education, continually and systemically defunding and destabilizing them and just expecting them to, to still do the thing that they do to keep our society running. You know, I'm sure that teachers, well, I know that I have friends who are teachers who stay up late at night and think about like what they have to do to provide an education and a stability for life. I think it also happens in other professions like uh, sports. And, you know, there's minor leaguers in sports who are doing it for the possibility that they might hit the bigs one day and they're told that they have to do this, that they have to go through this. Bethany Balker, who is a forward for the OL Reign, which is the one of the most profitable women's soccer franchises in the U.S., won Rookie of the Year in 2019, and her reward was a $50 Chipotle gift card because women's soccer is so, 
you know, deprioritized. They make a ton of money for their teams. They do really well, but they're told, well, you're playing a game for the love of the game and not for, you know, the rewards. So I think, I think there's a lot of different ways that vocational awe hits our community, but it's, I, I like that it, it, it's being brought to light in far as librarianship goes, because it's a disservice to libraries, disservice to librarians, and it's an especial disservice to the public who deserves a growing library field. Well, one of the systematic, uh, systemic ways that vocational awe, um, from what I can see, again, not a researcher on this topic, but from what I can see with my eyeballs, it tends to impact pink collar, uh, female dominant, and I suspect also people of color dominant professions, although I do not know anything about that from personal experience, so I'm less comfortable talking about that. You know, I mean, when you talk about like the extreme disparity between women's soccer, which is more popular in the United States than men's soccer and has a higher track record of gold medals and success in recent years than men's soccer, but they're still playing on AstroTurf which is dangerous and they're still not making as much money even when they're getting um, championships compared to the men's team getting lower on the rankings in the same year. Teaching is a female dominant profession. Librarianship is a female dominant profession. Your listeners who are not in librarianship might not know that um, if all they're familiar with is this podcast, but I assure you it is. You know, nursing is another field where I think vocational awe really plays a heavy, heavy role of burn yourself out because you have patients that need you. Daycare workers, you know, there's so many fields that seem to be more predominantly female staffed and those seem to be the fields that are hit the hardest and heaviest by vocational awe frameworks. I worked in a school for a number of years. I was a school librarian. And I personally, my worst experiences with vocational awe were in that setting. I found it was constantly coupled with really toxic positivity in the school that I was at. And so if something wasn't working, it was because we didn't have the right attitude to keep sacrificing our own time and energy and mental health for the good of the children, quote unquote, for the good of the students, for doing what's best for the students. And as a school librarian, what that ended up translating to was looking at my day and having my time, which was supposed to be protected, where I was supposed to have a significant amount of time in the library um, where students could come visit me in the library to do their research projects, to pleasure read, to um, do computer projects, to spend quality time one-on-one -on -one with a tutor, whatever it would be, that time was chipped away at because we needed a lunch monitor. And if I said, well, I can't be the lunch monitor, this is my planning period, I wasn't putting students first. Or 
I mean, at one point I was teaching PE classes instead of being the librarian because that was what was for the good of the students. You know, at another point I had my literal um, timesheet for a week had been changed by an office admin because I put in that I had stayed extra to do um, parent teacher conferences, which I was required to be at by my principal um, for the good of the students. And my timesheet got changed without my permission to have that time taken off of it. And when I asked why I wasn't getting paid for the time that I had spent, well, it wasn't for the good of the school, which then impacted the good of the students to pay me for that time in the library doing my job, which was not legal, of course. And the reason given was always about, well, this is what's best for students. Um, you know, vocational awe can really be weaponized. And I, I think that there is a, a hard balance in America in particular, where we come from a culture of good old American Protestant work ethic, where we are taught that slowing down is slovenly and sinful and bad. And having the space to do things well, including the space to eat our lunch or take our 15 minute break or go home at the end of the day and leave work at work, that's considered a problem in that framework of needing to always be working. I was reminded as we were talking about schools, I have a former student worker, someone I hired as a freshman in college to work in the library for. She has since uh, gone on to become a high school teacher and she's only in her second year of teaching, but you know, it happened to be her first two years were pretty much pandemic years. And, you know, she had to create a GoFundMe for supplies for her office and she's in teaching high school and she's in her mid-20s and not too far away age-wise from these students and I know she has dealt with a lot of issues of feeling completely overwhelmed and just thrown into it. I know that teachers especially right now are dealing with this just as much as librarians. Yeah we do not have the market on vocational law um, but it does impact us and it impacts our patrons and it impacts our institutional success, right? I mean, that's the irony of it, is that as institutions, libraries, um, library admins sometimes, not always, but sometimes will weaponize vocational awe, similar to the way that I just described my school admin doing, right? Asking library staff to burn themselves out for the good of a library mission to um, do more with less. I think we've seen a lot of that, especially in the pandemic, or when we see budget cuts, or when we have other challenges as institutions and as a profession. Um, one of the tactics 
that administrations will use is to say, put our mission forward first and foremost so that you can keep your energy about you while um, remembering why you come to work every day and that backfires, that creates very disgruntled employees, that creates employees who do not trust their administrators, who do not feel validated, like they can be their, their whole selves when they come to work because sometimes I'm grumpy when I'm at work. I'm not always happy to be there. You know, and it is, it, it backfires because when we are so busy insisting that we have a good mission that is driving forward our action, we're not stopping and reflecting to see if our mission is actually in line with what we want to do. And we're not stopping to reflect if our actions are actually what we want to do. And we're not reflecting who are we leaving out? You know, and that impacts our, our very real metrics, our very real outcomes, our very real initiatives and goals that we have as institutions that we need to have in order to keep being institutions that exist and serve the public or your school or your museum, whatever your institution is, you are tied to institutional values. And when we let vocational awe cloud those values, we forget to reflect on where we can do better. You know, there's so much success to be had in librarianship. I think it's a wonderful profession. I don't, I don't think that it's any more lofty than any other education <laughs> system, but I think that it, it's an element of a functional society that requires our professional attention and it requires our, you know, a, a certain level of competence, literacy and excellence within the profession. But I also don't believe it's the salvation of the world. And I think one of the things that makes the, a lot of sense about what you're saying is how it comes from the, the pressure of vocational awe comes from all angles from below with the expectations of a society that's steeped in patriarchy and capitalism. It comes from above where it benefits the people who are paying us or, or spending their time allocating for our pay and wanting to get the most out of us that they possibly can with the least investment. And then it also comes from within, because I think we all inherently want to feel important and we want to, we want to face this pressure that's coming from above and below and respond to it in a way that makes us, you know, it, it, it's, it's, I think part of it feels like a defense reaction. Does that make sense? Like we talked about it a little earlier when, when we talked about like telling people that we're a librarian or hearing, oh, our libraries aren't there. Like, how's it going with Amazon and everything? It's like the gut reaction is to be like, libraries are everything. And where would the fuck would you be with Amazon? If, excuse my language, but you know, let's see Amazon you know, babysit your kids. Let's see Amazon carry the, your books out to your car. Let's see Amazon do your taxes. So like I start immediately spouting off all these things that I do for my job that I shouldn't do. <laughs> oh no, jeez. You, you, you know what I mean though? It's yes. like yes. the immediate things that come to your mind when you're defending librarianship are the vocational awe elements. Yes. And it's, but it's, and, and you know, and I'm like, you know, don't get me wrong. I don't actually babysit people's kids and do their taxes, but like, 
you know, we bend over backwards to help people because people need help and they're not getting help from the support structures that belong in a functional society. And we internalize that because in one way or in another through vocational awe, we're told that we're supposed to. Does that make sense? Am I? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that makes complete sense. And I, I'd just like to say, I know sometimes on this show, it may sound like Jews and I are harping on the profession, but we're in it because we love it and we don't drag it down to bitch about it. We do it to make people aware of what all it entails. And there might be some venting that just a little bit, but uh, one of the things too, uh, that Biblio Burrow talked about that I have seen, I can't tell you how many times in many libraries that I've worked at is a position being eliminated. And instead of that position being filled, Oh, everyone else is just picking up the slack and gotten to the point where departments have gone away in some of the places I've worked because they've just pushed it to, okay, you're doing this job now, whether that's in your account or your job description or not, it's now your task. It definitely can, can wear on you. Now I have a lot of thoughts about everything that you both just said, and I'm going to try to take some of them, but it might bounce around a little bit, which will not make for very good podcast audio. So my apologies to you and to the listeners. Um, That's what the wonderful magic of editing is for. <laughs> so first, I want to say that on a personal level, okay, because there's the different layers of vocational awe. Most of the layers are institutional. Most of the layers are societal. Most of the layers are systemic, right? They are things like racism, uh, white supremacy, capitalism, sexism, ableism, right? It's these big picture things. I personally do not feel like I have a lot of control over those things. People who study this might have better solutions in those big picture things, but I do feel like I have more control over my own personal sphere. So that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about. In my own personal sphere, the places that I have seen vocational awe play out often tie to the same places that I see imposter syndrome playing out, which I think is something that also is really prevalent in librarianship because a lot of people become librarians because they are used to being the smart one in a room and they are used to having the answers or knowing where to go to have the answers and they are not used to not knowing things. I've never been that person personally I was almost a high school dropout. So for me, that is something that I feel like I have a leg up on when it comes to this need to feel like I always know um, the answers because I never have always felt like I've always known the answers. Um, but when I went to grad school, I did feel like I shouldn't be in the room despite having even had the title librarian before going to grad school, right? I felt like, wow, everyone else here is gonna be so much smarter than me. They're gonna be so much better at school than I am. 
they are going to have all this amazing experience that I can't even compare to. And then during my orientation session, one of the program leaders very smartly had us fill out an anonymous kind of survey that populated into a word cloud. And we were asked, what were we feeling in that moment? And it was anonymous. We didn't know who said what, but the more common answers populated, right, is the bigger words because it was a word cloud. And over a third of the people in the room with, and I mean, it's like 120 people, over a third of them put imposter syndrome. And that was the biggest word in the I mean, it's two words, but it was the very biggest specific. chunk, <laughs> very specific. And so that was my first day of grad school. And I was like, oh, no one here feels like they belong. I'm fine. We're all struggling. It's fine. And then I was able to let go of that feeling that I wasn't good enough, that I didn't deserve a seat in that room because spoiler alert, we all felt that way or at least a third of us did, which is pretty significant in a room of 120 grad students. You know, so on that, that personal level, I think resilience is really an important tool in our toolbox, right? Figuring out what works for you to logic through and move past that emotional response that you're not doing enough, that you aren't enough, that you need to be doing more, that the work you're doing isn't enough. And I think if you can figure out what works for you, Wooster and Jeeves and dear listeners, in situations where vocational awe might win out, and you can just start to win those little battles, you know, you'll, you'll develop those personal habits of this is me prioritizing my own health and my own boundaries and my own self-care over letting this really toxic ideology win out. And that's hard. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. That is so much easier said than done. You know, but so for instance, Jeeves, you talked about when someone comes to the desk and they say, I need you to do my taxes. Well, vocational awe tells us that we need to say oh my gosh we need to help you get your taxes done which is an important service that many public libraries provide but in a vocational awe framework you would then you know frantically help this patron figure out which forms they need you would help them fill it out you would help them you know do all of these things that you're you're a lot of things, Jeeves. You have had a lot of jobs, but you are not an accountant, right? Like you, you <laughs> impress me with the amount of skills that you have. Accountancy is not one of them that I know of. And we forget in librarianship that a referral is a full answer, right? The correct answer that would help you overcome vocational awe in that situation is to say, here is the information of a tax preparer or here is the information of a group that will offer tax prep help from this time 
or you know here is a website that you can print your tax forms from and we will print them for free from you but you need to figure out which forms you need because we are not accountants and it is not legal for us to determine for you which forms are the right forms for your taxes so those kinds of boundaries where we can remember that I'm not a bad librarian for giving a referral. A referral is still an answer. You know, that's one example. Or I'm trying to think of some of the other scenarios that you brought up. I, I like that response because it, it emphasizes the importance of a, a warm handoff, but also about like balancing your resources. Because if we're really doing our job the way we're supposed to be doing our job, we're taking resources and we're providing access to them and that includes us as professionals and Absolutely. If, if we waste ourselves trying to be either the smartest person in the room who knows all the answers or if we just give and sacrifice ourselves because we live in a world where some people get to not have empathy and some people do and, and we're trying to compensate then we can't help the next person in line and the next person in line is just going to have another crisis so managing our resources like we manage budgets to build good collections includes being ready to give a referral even if it's not what the patron wants or not taking our benefited time because we feel like nobody else will be there for the patron yes that's that's a big one and i i know there are librarians who really feel like if they take their breaks then they are letting their patrons down right but to be honest that is not their responsibility, that is the scheduler's responsibility, that is an administrator's responsibility. It is not a librarian or library worker's job to ensure that a library is well staffed. And if you are understaffed to the point where people are not getting their legally guaranteed breaks, and in the US, we do not have very many legal protections as workers. Most countries in the West have way more than we do. That's pretty much the only one that we have. By not taking it, you're giving the message to your employer that there's not a problem because they won't see the gap, because they won't know there's a gap because no one is taking their break. It's also giving the message to your other colleagues to your teammates that you have a a different moral compass than they do when it comes to your job and you might not think that right you might not think well i'm better than joe because i don't take my breaks but joe always takes his breaks and oh my gosh like i would never do that if someone was at the desk needing me but what it does is it gives ammunition to bosses to then go to Joe and say, well, why are you always taking your breaks? Susie's never taking her breaks. You know, I mean, that was exactly the justification that was given to me when my timesheet was changed by my school administrator. 
that um, because teachers were there for back to school night and they weren't paid extra to be there, that I was not, you know, I should not have been paid extra to be there. However, the teachers at my building were salaried and the salary already factored in the pay for back to school night. I was an hourly employee and I was supposed to be paid for my time to be there, right? I mean, it was that exact justification of, well, they're not doing it, so why should you? And they'll hide it behind words like dedicated or mm. um, motivated or team player. But yep. really, whether you like it or not, you're being a scab. You're disadvantaging other people. And ex yeah, excuse, <laughs> excuse my working class verbiage, but like you're scabbing. You're, 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 you know, and I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of saying I can't take a week off because I've tried to explain the importance of this role being staffed and you're telling me you're not going to staff it. And I'm like, I know that taking the time off isn't gonna hurt you right away. <laughs> it's gonna hurt my colleagues, it's gonna hurt my patrons, or it's gonna, but at the same time, I, you know, there is a professional responsibility to hold yourself accountable and then hold, you, you know, your colleagues and your managers accountable for what is legal and right and sustainable. And so I, I have started taking my benefit at time. <laughs> yes, good job, Jeeves. Uh, and something I would add that I don't think people who are outside the library field would really think about, but many of the libraries out there, whether it's a public library or an academic library, the people on charge aren't really directly related to the library. You know, you have city governments telling public libraries what they can do. You have presidential boards in a college telling, and they have the information, but they're just looking at stats. They're not, you know, on the ground seeing what's happening in the library. All that they're seeing is the stats, like how many people were served, how many questions were answered, things of that nature. So, you know, we have to do our part as well to make them aware of, hey, we're being overworked in this or we're there's being too much expected of us and um i don't think there's enough of that right now in the field yeah yeah absolutely well and, and i want to back up too because i think while perhaps not on purpose but certainly to the detriment of this topic one of the things that i have done so far is i've really focused on personal responsibility and i have not emphasized that there is responsibility um, and there is more responsibility to address these concerns with administrative level work. However, the three of us are not administrators. And so the three of us don't have that level of power at this time to impact our libraries in that way. But I do think that we will be a part of a generation of future library leaders that will be thinking about vocational awe first and foremost, because we are the pandemic library generation, as well as the generation of librarians that read about vocational awe and talked about vocational awe in grad school as part of our curriculum. I will say though, I have worked for a library manager who I just adore, who I don't know if she was um, 
aware of the term vocational awe, but she was very intentional about trauma-informed library models and very intentional about extending those trauma-informed library models to staff. Because a lot of times we think about our patrons needing to have safe library environments, welcoming library environments. When I think about, okay, what would this manager do, right? This manager that I love, this manager that I trust, this manager that in my opinion, did the right things to combat vocational awe as a toxic ideology in her staff and supported us when we said that we had too much on our shoulders and that we needed better boundaries. Okay. So there's, there's levels that she was doing as an administrator that I don't know about because I was not an administrator, but I know that down the chain, I felt supported to set boundaries with my own work. So whatever she was doing worked for this topic. And I think that is a problem if frontline staff, if people lower on the food chain feel like if they're not doing these things that should be happening higher up the ladder at a strategic initiative level, that if they won't happen, then I think our administrators are failing us. I think that's a symptom of vocational awe. The, the more intense and the longer that it's gone on, the only people who spend time with the public and who feel the pressure to have empathy and witness these situations and make change are the people who are on the floor. And so I do think you're right. It takes a little bit of, you know, you can recognize the situation and you're not going to fix patriarchy and you're not going to fix white supremacy. And you can only do so much to fight administration for the things that your library needs before you start to burn out. It's just a difficult spot a lot of librarians are in. Absolutely. So I think what you what you what you've said so far in this whole conversation about understanding what we can combat and what we can be intentional about and slow things down for ourselves is so important. And that the concept that it's literally called slow librarianship. So I'm glad that you say slow down because that is if nothing else, I hope that that is your personal takeaway from this is slow down, right? Take your lunch break. Don't check emails when you're off the clock. Find those those personal self-care moments to reclaim your sense of identity outside of your job because a job is what you do. It is not who you are. And And beyond that, I think if you're in a space for it, collective action is, is a powerful tool, right? I mean, it, it can be through a formal union, although I don't think most libraries have that. If enough frontline staff can come together to your director and say, we have all noticed this problem. We have all felt this strain. We all know that we need this type of resource in order to serve this type of patron with enough people saying it enough times it's harder to ignore and that doesn't mean it'll be heard but it's also harder to pin it on one person as a troublemaker i want to touch on something that you mentioned a little bit and just again something that 
people may not realize, but one of the realizations I had as we were talking, you you mentioned trauma and our generation. Not only are we the generation of pandemic librarians, we are the generation of librarians who have to practice for active shooter drills and have Alice training. And I know Jeeves could talk about this in much more detail, but that's something that can weigh on you too. You know, that's something when I was, you know, first starting, I would never have thought I would have to concern myself, but especially now working academic, it's something that is constantly, you know, on a yearly basis brought up like, oh, we need to do active training or active shooter trainings and we need to be aware of this. And that can take an emotional toll on you thinking about that happening in your campus and what role you would play in there and, you know, where you put your safety over the students, things like that, that I never would have thought in my life when I was younger, getting into this field would be something that I would be thinking about. And beyond just um, incidents where there's an antagonist, trauma um, happens in naturally occurring disasters as well. And libraries have really had to um, cope with that as well as social trauma, right? Um, you know, I personally have experienced a patron dying in front of me um, and then getting resuscitated and then dying a second time um, while at work. And that's a trauma that I really um, had to learn how to cope with and had to learn how to be healthy through. And that was a situation that was a medical emergency, you know, that my staff was prepared for and did everything right, and we still lost the patron. There's also a lot of social uprisings that libraries have been really central, um, central community hubs through to be um, a good advocate, a good resource for the community in crisis through um, protest, through hurricanes, through fires. I mean, there's, there's so many levels of trauma, immigration crises. It's, and I, I think we need to have a understanding of trauma and resiliency and what's healthy resiliency and what's not healthy resiliency because we often misunderstand those two concepts. Yeah. I think if we're going to be sustainable and if we're going to be part of this great future of libraries contributing to society that we've been preaching for so many years through vocational awe, we're gonna to have to first tackle vocational awe and then be cognizant of our sustainability as we move forward through protecting ourselves and each other. And also, you know, I've, I've said this before and I'll keep saying it, uh, the ALA is not, uh, you know, a um, perfect institution and have had a really rough history as far as inclusivity and um, just doing the right thing at the right moment for the profession. But in the 
code of professional ethics, it does call us to protect and to care for and to grow the future of the institution. And sometimes that means us. And sometimes that means, you know, making this profession a better place for the people who follow us too. I am currently teaching at the grad level and I am very excited for the future of, um, of librarianship. I think we have a really a smart and dedicated and compassionate and radical cohort of professionals that are coming into their own right now. And I think we're gonna see some really great things come out of them. I think that's actually probably a really wonderful note to wrap the conversation up on is, is just how beautiful not only Gen Z looks right now, but also the kind of person who is, you know, coming, going to come to librarianship, you know, full circle from a non MLIS background or a non library background and join the profession, not because of vocational awe, but because of a capacity and because of an interest and because of a, you know, intentionality that they want to do the job um, in, in the future, it, whether they're a social worker or teacher or a paraprofessional. I think that, you know, libraries are strong when we are diverse and when we are slow, like Biblioboro has been saying, and intentional. Yeah, and I want to say thank you for coming on and talking with us and you mentioned that you're not an expert but i think that's what we need we need you know people in the field people who are experiencing this to have the conversations not i mean it's great to have the expert defending it's great to, for them to put out the the articles and the statistics so we can see them but talking about it on an equal level with everyone in the field i think is how we really combat the problem it's well said, Mr. Woosters. I would encourage all the listeners out there to find the biblioboroughs in your institution who have been thinking about this and wrestling with this and can articulate and give you advice on whatever you're struggling with, whether it's vocational awe or anything else in the profession. Well, thank you both so much for having me. Um, this, this has really been a highlight of my time and um, you both know this, but the listeners need to know it too. Um, I really cherish both of you very much. And this has been a really um, a rewarding evening to spend with both of you. And we'll leave you tonight with this quote from Fubazi Itar, who coined the term vocational awe. Vocational awe is fucking toxic. And we as librarians need to stop spreading the rhetoric that libraries are the beacon of democracy and critical thinking. Libraries are just buildings. It is the people who do the work and we need to treat these people well. You can't eat on passion. You can't pay rent on passion. It is not a sustainable source of income and we need to stop treating vocational awe as the only way to be a librarian. Thanks and we hope to see you next time. Meeting adjourned.
Our theme song was adapted and performed by Catherine Rose. You can listen to more of Catherine's music on the last Friday of every month at 7 p.m. Pacific time at facebook.com forward slash Catherine Rose Folk. That's Catherine, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N. Or Mondays on her radio show, The Celtic Music Hour on KOCF 92.7. And if you have a library story you'd like to share, again, you can email us at librarians at 